This is Jim Pruitt, and you listen to another episode of the Farm So Hard podcast. So I farm so hard, employees want to find me, and then want to hire me. What's 100K to a guy like me? Could you please remind me? Farm so hard, this ain't easy. Working late nights, you best believe me. My grades can only go ace. Never want to see another B unless I'm Jay-Z. Farm so hard, let's get What's good, fam? your host, Jim Pruitt, a.k.a. Farm Dean ED, and I'm bringing you another episode of the Farm So Hard podcast. Today, I have one of the more controversial topics that... I've done in a while. And to be honest, the more I look at this data, the more confused I get and the more intrigued I get. But let's get into today's episode talking about Etominate for RSI and the seizing patient. But guys, before we jump into the episode, major shout out to the other platforms that's been doing a phenomenal job with us. Pharmacy Friday Pearls has been great being able to give you guys some short form information. Of course, Empower was a great conference that we did. And of course, our premium membership website is going to be PACU. So if you're intrigued with any of the things that we do here, those can be some of the other ways that you can engage with us and support the show. So let's go ahead and jump into this episode. RSI, or rapid sequence intubation, is going to be a process whereby induction agent is going to be followed by a neuromuscular blocking agent given in rapid cessation to facilitate endotracheal intubation. However, the selection of a sedative depends on multiple factors, looking at the clinical scenario, which patient factors are involved, looking from a cardiopulmonary standpoint, neurological status, allergies, comorbidities, all these things are going to help our clinician pick which agent we will use. Atomity is going to be the most common agent, and we would like to say in today, again, this is going to be in the end of April 2022, it's the most commonly used agent that I've seen when we surveyed providers and different pharmacists out there. And one of the big things is the fact that it's going to be, from a hemodynamic standpoint, pretty favorable. But there's a few things that we have to consider in certain patient populations, particularly those neurology patients, when you have this myoclonus that's going to be associated with it when you give it about half of the time, some data saying up to 70% of the time you have this very strong myoclonic jerk and just tightening. It looks like posturing at times. Or it looks like a seizure. And separately, independent from that, is the fact that there is a risk of decreasing the seizure threshold. And this is something that's going to be unique to accommodate. The more I look into it and pick up some of my anesthesia textbooks, it's going to be very common with some of the agents that we use, like ketamine as well. But again, not as popularized and not talked about to the degree that it is with accommodate. But just for some background, the dose that we traditionally use is going to be 0.3 mg per kg. And that's going to be roughly around anywhere from 15 to 30 milligrams for most of our patient. You're going to give it as a rapid IV push and see an onset of about 20 seconds. Duration is going to range anywhere from 4 to 10 minutes. From a metabolism standpoint, it's going to be hydrolyzed and it's going to be 75% renally eliminated. The adverse effect profile is going to be pretty unique with having injection site pain because it's going to actually be very hyperosmolar. Uh, You have some nausea and vomiting, but the two things that we want to talk about today is the myoclonus to a degree, but in in particular, this decrease in seizure threshold that's associated with it. From a hemodynamic standpoint, the reason that we love Atomidate is because it's not going to have much on a blood pressure or cardiac output or heart rate standpoint. We know there are some issues with a decrease in cortisol due to inhibition of steroid synthesis, particularly in a critically ill patient population. And there isn't much of a issue when it comes to ICP. There's some data looking at it potentially can decrease ICP and intraocular pressure as well. Contrast that to some of the other agents that we have, like ketamine, that increases blood pressure and heart rate and cardiac output. 
not much issues on cortisol and this theoretical increase with older data, but most of the newer data saying it's going to have a no impact or decrease in intracranial pressure. And then looking at propofol that actually decreases your blood pressure, uh, potentially can have no difference to decrease in heart rate, decrease in cardiac output, no issues with cortisol and a pretty consistent data looking at it reducing intracranial pressure. So the real question that comes up quite often is whether or not atomidate causes seizures. And that's something that we all want to know. And I thought was a very simple question. But the more I looked at this data, guys, the more intriguing that it really got. Uh, so I reached out to Twitter and I reached out to Instagram to see, hey, do you guys think atomidate causes seizures in RSI? And most people said no. But 74 percent of people in this poll said no. Um, and only 26 percent of people said, yeah. And then. Ask myself the next question, like, what is this myoclonic reaction or this myoclonus that's going to be associated with atomidate? And it is known to happen in 30 to 6 percent of patients upon administration. And the mechanism is believed to be related to the disinhibition of the extrapyramidal motor activities. And this is similar to like restless legs during sleep and not due to epileptic focus. But this is also controversial depending on the type of seizures. And I'm not going to pretend to be a neurologist. I'm not going to tend to be someone who understands the depth. But when I look at some of the textbooks, I look at some of the data and I reach out to my, my friends. They say that it's not very easy to catch certain myoclonic uh, seizures on EEG. So, again, most of them is not but at the same time, we can't say for 100 percent certainty that all of these patients are not having any type of seizures when it comes to that myoclonic reaction that happens upon injection. So the next thing that comes up is that the theory of if atomidate promotes seizures, which patient population is at risk? And I reached out to again to people out on social media. And of course, they would say those people who are already seizing and I had to go and see what does the anesthesia textbook say, because that's going to be something that I think is unique as well. And you, you, I really want to emphasize what this particular uh, textbook said. It's Miller's Anesthesia, the ninth edition. It said that atomidate has been shown to precipitate generalized epileptic EEG activity in epileptic patients and its use in this population probably should be avoided. However, it is electively using low doses to activate seizure foci for the purpose of intraoperative EEG localization. And the other component of that is that the preceding information, notwithstanding no convincing reports, indicate that epileptogenesis in subjects who are neurologically normal and the use of atomate need not be restricted on the basis. In fact, atomate has been used to control refractory status epilepticus. So, to be honest, guys, when I read that, it really just threw me all over the place because if we're going to use something that can be used in surgery to activate seizure foci, that's that's pretty troubling for me in a patient and to them to promote that there are some data saying that you can cause uh, some generalized seizing in, in patients with an EEG, that's concerning as well. And I want to figure out, okay, if this is the case, and I've had some interactions with our anesthesia colleagues and asked the same question, I'm like, what is the actual clinical data, particularly in those patients and for the people who were intubating in the ED? So let's move forward, talk about the data. I want to go all the way back to one of the first studies that I was able to find in textbooks and things of that nature in 1977. This was a clinical an electroencephalographic comparison with theopentol. Again, atomidate versus theopentol. 
This is done by Dr. Croning and colleagues in Iowa City, Iowa. So a little background. This is a study looking at 120 elective surgery patients receiving either Atomidate or Theopentyl for anesthesia induction. And what they found was that there's myoclonic movements in 28% of those patients that got Atomidate compared to 0% of those that got sodium theopentyl. These tonic movements, again, which they characterize a little differently, happened in 11% of patients with Atomidate compared to 1% in theopentyl. But the interesting part was that they noted no epileptic foreign discharges were noted in 10 patients who had EEG monitoring. Again, not necessarily something that is very you know, reassuring, especially at that initial time to let us know, hey, is these myoclonic movements, you know, purposeful or are these things something that's causing EEG or are we missing it in some of these patients? So I was intrigued by that and want to look a little deeper and look into more information. So this is another one that I saw in the textbooks. Again, I like to always go and double check behind these textbooks to see. And this study was done by Ibrahim and colleagues, and it was titled The Effects of Atomidate on EEG of Patients with Epilepsy. So I thought that was a cool one. And this was actually published in 1986. And what they did was look at patients. It was 12 patients, rather, with intractable seizures undergoing cortical reception of seizure uh, foci, receiving Atomidate for anesthesia. So all these patients got, got Atomidate. Nine out of 12 had an increase in epileptic form activity after Atomidate administration. And I thought that was Rather intriguing, to be honest, and they have some, some graphics here. They looked at the, the type of waves for each of these patients. So that gave me a little bit to be concerned with again. But looking at the type of study and the, the strength of this, again, we're looking at just 12 patients that's already seasoned that we're going in and doing surgery on, you know, over 30 years ago. I'm not too, you know, too strong with this data, but it's at least something that make me consider there was another study that was done by um, Dr. Gaber and colleagues. This is what I saw the most of when I start pulling articles on PubMed. It's the comparison of atomic with other agents and on, on the impact of seizure thresholds during e- ECT therapy. And that was pretty interesting. And then the, the patient population was going to be dosed with schizophrenia. This one was done in 2007. And what they did was they compared 30 patients Again, it's randomized crossover study. So those who got propofol got one mg per kg and those who got Tomate got 0.2 mg per kg, which is, again, slightly less than what, what we use. And after Tomate induction, seizure durations registered either by EEG or EMG were longer than propofol-treated cases. However, there was no significant differences found for the minimal seizure eliciting stimulating energy or the number of re-stimulations between the two anesthetics. So again, that was intriguing because it doesn't necessarily let me know about the seizure threshold because I thought that it would take more or less energy to actually stimulate a seizure in these patients. So that was intriguing, but the fact that it actually had a longer seizure also was another thing that made me a little bit more concerned. So I saw those older data I saw in ECT, I, I saw that. And I was just wondering, is there anything out there in the ED, we're looking at seizures, looking at anything, because it just it made me a little concerned because, again, I know places that I've been and people I've talked to, we give a significant amount of accommodate. And I want to figure out, is there anything else in the ED? So this study was done by Goldner and colleagues. And what they did was look at their accommodate use across the board and intubating children. They want to see the hemodynamic effect and the adverse effects. 
And what they did was look at 105 pediatric patients undergoing RSI, and they found that no patients had seizures in the ED. However, there was four patients with a known seizure history that had seizures after hospital admission. So at some point during their hospitalization, they had a seizure. But again, I can't put that all on a Tomidate, but I'm, I am intrigued, to be honest. So something that I want to see more of. Uh, this next one was done by Perry and colleagues, and this was the ICTO uh, study group. And this was a really intriguing one for me. This one was a comparison of a Tomidate and sodium theopentol for induction during RSI and convulsive status atheleptics patients. This was something I raised my eyebrows. It was done in 2018. And let's be honest, I was heavily intrigued. This was done in a unit in France. So they looked at 97 patients undergoing RSI with a Tomidate or theopentol, again, in the, in the EDRCU uh, for convulsive status. And what they found was that Seizures or status epilepticus reoccurred in 56 patients in a Tomidate group compared to 44% of patients in a sodium cepental group. They didn't report it being statistically significant, but again, it's something to consider. Uh, the, the two groups, again, were not significant, significantly different for the proportion of patients with hemodynamic instability after intubation or those with difficult intubation. So again, it made it to where there's almost nothing that, that was different across the board. But a few things that come up in my head is, as I continue to read this is, man, if they had, you know, a thousand patients, would that have been different? And I don't know. I, I really don't know. And it's just something that intrigued me. Again, it, what was coming at me is saying that there's something we should look at. But again, this data, again, in the pediatric population and looking at this one here, it's not anything that is actually saying from a scientific standpoint that Atomity is causing more seizures. And I also want to look at this and figure out if there's any other studies that support, you know, are using Atomidate and seizures. And we looked at this additional study done in a general population. And again, they found that there was no relationship between seizures after Atomidate administration and a prior history. So again, there was no association in that group there. Of course, Atomidate did a great job for intubating conditions. And there was a slight decrease in blood pressure and the cortisol, corticosteroids was actually giving in a decent amount of their patients for varying reasons. But again, overall, the big thing I want to get out of this study was figuring out whether or not there's a relationship between seizures and people who had a prior history. So I'm perplexed, guys. Not going to lie. Again, I know the Tomidate is going to be commonly used in a significant amount of emergency settings. And the Tomidate has been shown to elicit myoclonus in a significant amount of patients. The issue that I have is that is this myoclonus what people are calling seizures? Is whether this myoclonus is actually confirmed epileptic form activity? Um, that seems to be un unknown, especially after talking to people who's much smarter than me. Uh, and to make again, as I said before, depending on the origin and the type of seizure, it may be challenging for EEG to differentiate between non seizure and seizure activity during myoclonic events. So something to consider, and it gives me a lot of uncertainty. But the way I look at it is due to this low level of evidence and due to just a lot of uncertainty in patients with a history of seizure, there, there should be a risk versus benefit assessment uh, to figure out what's the best agent. Uh, we, have, we have propofol that we know have anti-seizure properties. We have ketamine that we know have anti-seizure properties, particularly the dosing that we use. And I'm just, I'm perplexed when it comes to this. And I want to hear you guys' thoughts. 
uh, if you're anesthesia, your ED, all that, and you just think I'm a complete idiot, that's completely fine. I am so uncertain on this and it's something that I want to learn more on and it's something that I want to hear if there's more data out there because it just seems like a lot of things are uncertain and I'm unable to make any strong recommendations one way or the other. Uh, it just looks like it could, uh, but the data is not saying that exactly across the board. So again, appreciate you guys. This has been really great. And I'm just intrigued with this topic and I want to hear more from you guys. So go check a lot of this stuff out. The the PowerPoint that I, I made for this, the Pearl that's, that's been sent there, all that's going to be in the show notes. So go check that out for certain and just let me know how you feel. Send this episode to some of your anesthesia friends, your neurology friends and have them say, hey, Jimmy's an idiot. This definitely happens. Here's some studies that he didn't look at in the general population. And this is why you should or should not use it. But I'm intrigued for sure. Definitely appreciate you guys for listening to another episode of Farm So Hard. Again, continue to check this stuff out. Let me know on social media, email, all the things that you like, the stuff you don't like, and we can really go from there. Please, you know, like, rank us, subscribe to our podcast on all the major platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, all those things. So just let us know what you enjoy. And again, I'm going to end it the same way in every episode. You don't have to be a pharmacist. You don't have to work in an ED, but everything you do, make sure you farm so hard. Closes it. Ozzie scratches his head. Whatever she's looking for, it isn't in there.